Welcome to Indie Audio, the audio version of The Independent. To listen to past episodes of Indie Audio, go to independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T.org. If you like what you hear, please help support The Independent by going to our webpage and donating or becoming... This is Dean Patterson reading the article Picket Lines Past, a review of the book A History of America in Ten Strikes by Eric Loomis, published by The New Press in 2018. The article is by Stephen Sherman. With public support for unions surging, historian Eric Loomis has produced a timely book called A History of America in Ten Strikes. It's more comprehensive than the Ten Strikes title implies, with some 150 events listed in the appendix. It might have been more accurately called A History of America in 150 Labor Events. There is some danger of the reader getting lost in the multitude of scenes of gun battles and such between workers and Pinkertons or police, but Loomis does well in extracting a coherent narrative arc about how these instances show the importance of the government's attitudes and actions towards labor. The narrative begins with the brutal inauguration of the Industrial Revolution in the United States between 1820 and 1850. The courts regularly ruled in favor of employer rights, and unionization efforts were hard-fought and short-lived. Loomis continues by describing slaves' resistances and rebellions, culminating during the Civil War, when they fled plantations as the Union Army approached. They simultaneously freed themselves and undermined the Confederate war effort, as it depended on revenues from the sale of slave-grown cotton. This is the freshest chapter in the book as slavery is usually omitted from the American working-class histories. The Gilded Age that followed the war saw widespread strikes and a growing movement for the eight-hour workday. The Knights of Labor grew rapidly in the context of national railroad strikes, but their membership collapsed in the wake of repression after the Haymarket bombing that killed four police officers in 1886. This opened the way for more conservative American Federation of Labor, which focused on uniting craft workers who were overwhelmingly white men, rather than the entire working class. Even so, employers intensely resisted them. A rare labor victory came in a Colorado gold mining strike in 1894 when the government declared the owner's private army illegal. The progressive era marked a turning point. President Theodore Roosevelt's administration at times attempted to respond to strikes in a balanced way. As a candidate for vice president in 1900, Roosevelt had sided with striking mine workers, although they didn't win recognition for their union. Workers' struggles during this period aligned with middle-class reformist outrage at child labor and abysmal working conditions. Loomis argued that this was not effective improving the overall conditions of the working class, and thus spurred greater radicalization. This led to the growth of the industrial workers of the world, with its aspiration for one big union and general strike to bring down capitalism. Loomis criticizes many aspects of the IWW, including its sectarianism, its violent rhetoric, and its tendency to jump from one place of struggle to another. Yet he also writes admiringly about its free speech struggles and its occasional ability to overcome racial divisions among working class people by rooting itself in working class struggles. It was not able to survive the repression during and after World War I, however. The 1930s saw a landmark breakthrough with a rising labor movement and industry benefiting from a virtuous cycle of sympathetic actors and government facilitating greater organizing and greater organizing enhancing the power of sympathetic actors. Unsurprisingly, Loomis highlights the Flint sit-down strike of 1936 to 1937 in which the United Auto Workers won their first contract with General Motors. Michigan's New Deal governor, Frank Murphy, helped by not sending the National Guard to crush the strike. After World War II, pent-up demand produced a wave of strikes. In Oakland, a fight against the Retail Merchants Association and the Republican political machine snowballed into a general strike, but dissipated amid racial and gender tensions. Not long after, the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947 hobbled unions, and anti-communist witch hunts purged many of their most militant and dedicated members and organizations. In the 1960s and 70s, public sector unionism expanded. 
in tandem with militant social movements. Much of the union movement, however, was out of step with the anti-war civil rights and feminist movements, and vice versa. Efforts by young workers to remake the unions and the anti-authoritarian spirit of their generation proved largely unsuccessful. The 1972 Wildcat strike against the pace of work at a GM plant in Lordstown, Ohio, failed to fundamentally shift work relations. The deteriorating economy and accelerated deindustrialization of the 1970s worsened the situation for unions. In Atlanta, Maynard Jackson, whose elections had been a triumph of the post-civil rights era, fired 1,300 striking sanitation workers. This was a preview of President Ronald Reagan firing striking air traffic controllers in 1981. Loomis portrays their union, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, as isolated from the larger working class and the public. It made a fateful miscalculation when it endorsed Reagan for president in 1980. The crushing of PATCO was a decisive moment, an announcement that the federal government was openly antagonistic to unions, encouraging corporations to abandon the post-World War II social contract of accepting them. In his final chapter, Loomis uses justice for janitors to highlight the way union struggles have refocused on immigrants during service work. Recent struggles noted, including opposition in Wisconsin to Governor Scott Walker's attacks on public sector unions, the Fight for 15 campaign, and the Verizon strike of 2016. Out of the 150 labor events listed, Loomis has crafted a clear narrative arc, beginning with the court's rejection of practically any rights for workers. American workers fought back and eventually attained more sympathy from government. During the New Deal era, workers' rights expanded and the new federal laws and policies facilitated the expansion of unions. But after the economic downturn in the 1970s, the business community went on the offensive and governmental allies largely disappeared. But new strategies of fighting back are being developed. The very story is well told and peppered with vivid details. Inevitably, there are omissions. The Teamsters UPS strike of 1997, the Great American Boycott staged by immigrants on May 1st, 2006, and the Ch Chicago Teachers Union 2012 strike all go unmentioned. These may hint at a direction of organizing and action as important as that mapped out by Justice for Janitors. The Chicago Teachers Strike in particular led the way for Red for Ed teacher strikes of the last year, which renewed the idea of the strike and struck at the red state model of low taxes, poor public services, and anti-union laws. Then, this January, teachers went on strike to challenge the privatization and the democratic redoubt of Los Angeles. Loomis emphasizes the need for the labor movement to welcome all workers regardless of race, gender, or immigration status and the importance of working through the existing American political system by engaging with the Democratic Party. That's good advice, but given all that is described above, can we defer forever the eliminating of the concentrated center of economic power in the business class? This clip was produced by Aaron Sheridan.